Hi, I'm Walt Woodward, state historian for Grading the Nutmeg. How did a genteel single woman from an old established Connecticut family end up running a summer boarding house for bohemian and impressionist painters? And how did Old Lyme become one of America's foremost art colonies? Find out in this episode with Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, and Amy Kurtz Lansing, curator at the Florence Griswold Museum in Old Lyme, Connecticut. Hi, it's Mary Donahue. Today we're going to talk about one of the most beautiful places to visit in Connecticut, the Florence Griswold Museum in Old Lyme. Did Old Lyme become the home to an art colony because of Miss Florence's good food at her boarding house, or because of the soft, lovely light on the salt marshes along the Lieutenant River? I hope to find out by talking to art historian Amy Kurtz Lansing, curator at the museum. We will also hear about new exhibitions up now, including celebrating 20 years of the Hartford Steam Boiler Collection, an exhibit that marks the arrival of 190 works of art in 2001, a gift that transformed the Griswold Museum, and a second exhibition, the Centennial of the Lyme Art Association Gallery. This is the museum's neighbor, and the exhibition partially recreates their 1921 inaugural exhibition in their shingle-style building designed by society architect Charles Platt, who is also the designer of the Freer Art Gallery in Washington, D.C., and the Lyme and Ellen Museum in New London. I know we've got two big special anniversary exhibitions to talk about in this episode, but I want to have you just sort of set the stage. When a visitor comes to the museum at the Florence Griswold House, it's really such a magical place. I've been there many times and it just is enchanting. Can you just describe where it's located and why artists thought it was so appealing? So the Florence Griswold Museum was founded by artists at, in Old Lyme, Connecticut, and it's founded at a place where they spent time painting in the summers of beginning in 1899. That was when the first artists visited Florence Griswold. And so the Griswold House is where the story started. That's the boarding house where they stayed with her, her family home. And um, from the times that they had together there, the artwork that they created there, bonds were formed that encouraged the artists to consider how they could, you know, cement the legacy of Florence Griswold and their group. And so they, they developed the museum out of that. Um, and today we have Florence Griswold's house, uh, which is just a treasure. It has a wonderful dining room with painted panels that the artists left behind as souvenirs of their time and fellowship in Old Lyme. And we also have a 12-acre campus that is Florence Griswold's original estate. And so we have gardens. We have an artist trail that navigates the different kind of environmental areas of, uh, of our site. Um, and we have the modern Creeble Gallery, which was opened in 2002 as a space for changing exhibitions. And we also have an artist studio on the site, the studio of William Chadwick, so that people can get the sense of what uh, an Impressionist painter's art studio was like. Now, my great-grandmother also ran a boarding house but it is not a National Historic Landmark, I can tell you. Tell us a little bit about Miss Florence and how this 
distinguished woman from a patrician family ended up running a boarding house. Yes, yeah, so um, Florence, as you said, was from a very distinguished family, the Griswolds. Um, her ancestors included two governors of Connecticut, and she was from a family that had been based in Old Lyme since the 1600s, and her, her very grandfather was one of the governors of Connecticut, and her father, though, went into uh, the shipping trade. He was um, involved in packet shipping between New York and London, and that's the idea that boats would travel on a regular schedule between those two cities, moving people and goods back and forth. And so he was very successful um, as a ship captain. Um, he married a woman who was originally from Ohio, Florence's mother, Helen Powers. Um, and rather than settle down on the Griswold property with the other Old Lyme Griswolds, they bought this house when they got married on Old Lyme's Main Street. And so holding on to the house would become something that was very important to, um, to Florence. So her father retired from the sea and perhaps because of investments or you know or other reasons the family's fortune seemed to diminish and um, Florence and her mother and sisters she and her sisters never married opened a home school in their house uh, in the late 1870s and they ran it until the early 1890s by the late 1890s Florence was really the only member of her family left to hold on to the house and so operating a boarding house grew out of what they had already been doing in terms of having girls boarding at the school that they taught out of their home. And it was a way for her as this kind of patrician woman to work respectably and also to achieve the goal of holding on to, um, to this treasured property. I think we forget how few options women had to make any kind of money that would support themselves. And this definitely boarding houses were a popular thing and summer boarding houses in Connecticut are an early, I think an early tourism type attraction. And Florence, and Florence really had, um, you know, she obviously took this in a direction beyond where most boarding houses go. She was a person who, you know, I think about her father being a packet ship captain. He's always described as this person of culture who would kind of entertain people aboard ship. And I sort of think Florence is carrying on that legacy in a certain sense. She was educated and cultured. You know, she never lived any place outside of Old Lyme. And yet she was very, you know, could talk on all different kinds of subjects with people, was really a people person. And so I think it was, you know, it was suited her nature and actually her upbringing, I, I think, to run this boarding house. Now, the artists I know were really drawn to how beautiful the site is and how the, the light in the summer in Connecticut really affects this rural, sort of rural village setting. And I know the, uh, the house is on the Lieutenant River. So she had these kind of bohemian artists coming to stay with her and lugging all their paints and easels and equipment with them. You know, what did she have to provide them on a daily basis for them to be a boarder? So as boarders, she provided them rooms to stay in, and she really gave the artists the run of the place, and I think that accounts for the success. She provided meals for them. A lot of the food was grown on the property in her gardens. She carried on her own parents' love of growing orchard fruits and vegetables and fruits. So she provided them good food to eat, and that apparently is a key factor in why Henry Ward Ranger, who was the first art artist to visit, came back the next year and brought friends, is that he thought the food was good. So 
good food. And then, as I said, she turned the place over to them in the sense that she was really all about accommodating their needs and kind of supporting them and get, and creating a place for them, as one part artist put it, that was so in line with work. So she uh, allowed them, adapted some of the spaces on the property uh, to create studios um, for them so they would have a place to work and to store their paintings. She, you know, said yes to this project of painting these door panels and wall panels in the house. And so she was, she was very encouraging to them. And so I think she created, you know, a space for creativity, basically, um, not by being really strict about rules, but by giving them a sense that they belonged uh, in this home and that she was there to, to kind of support their creative work. So it's really known as an art colony. Mm -hmm. These are painters that are starting to paint outside in the in the plain air, uh, like the French Impressionists. How does how does this art colony evolve or stack up with others in Connecticut or in the country, really? I mean, we consider ourselves to be the home of American Impressionism, um, as you just mentioned. And so in terms of stacking up, there, it's interesting, a number of the artists who visited Old Lyme are also people who had been to other art colonies, including the one in Cascab. But, you know, they are people who spent time in the Cascab art colony, um, which was centered around the artist John Henry Twachtman. But then later when it came time to move and find a, you know, a place to settle on their own to, to, you know, in their own homes, a, a number of them moved to Old Lyme. And I think what artistically, it's a place where there was very, you know, high quality work. Child Hassam is one of the leading artists of the colony, probably the best known painter associated with. And I think that gave it a real kind of boost in how it was perceived um, artistically. And then there was a lot of um, professional thought among the artists, I think, about how to create an Old Lyme, something that they didn't think uh, to develop in the same way at some of these other colonies. And I'm referring to the, the Lyme Art Association. From 1902, the artists exhibited their, the year's work, the summer's work at, at annual exhibitions that were held in the town's library. Um, and I think that gave the colony a kind of reputation as a place where you went to see art for public consumption. You know, so they, the artists um, helped publicize these exhibitions and by 1914 they decided that they wanted to make it official and um, formed an art association to build a permanent gallery. And so I think that is one of the things that kind of helped the Old Lyme colony sort of gain new prominence and then hold on to it. So there were other colonies um, around Mystic, um, I mentioned Greenwich and Cascab, their silver mine, um, but I think the building that the artists built is one that sort of gave them something that the other, other colonies in Connecticut kind of followed on the heels of that. More with our guest after this message. I want to give our listeners that recently completed the Connecticut Explored Reader Survey a big thank you. We learned a lot more about what you'd like to hear on the podcast. You can make a friend's gift to Friends of Connecticut Explored and use the coupon code GRADINGTHENUTMEG to have your gift support the podcast. All gifts with this coupon code will be shared with the Office of State Historian to support its outreach efforts. Go to ConnecticutExplored.org to make your donation. Now back to my guest. You started to tell us a little bit about the Lyme Art Association now, that's one of your new exhibitions that's up this year, the Centennial of the Lyme Art Association. And I did not realize how intertwined 
the beautiful building down the street from the Florence Griswold Museum and the museum really are in terms of the, the history. Could you tell us a little bit about how those two are connected? I mentioned, um, so what we're celebrating this year and into 2021 is the centennial of the building that the Lyme Artists Association built. The, built. the group itself was formed in 1914 and it's formed by artists who themselves had been collaborators in a lot of different kind of projects before. Um, they exhibited together, they participated in clubs in New York where they showed their work um, and they had a, the fellowship that existed at the Griswold House. Um, a number of them were actually people who helped develop cooperative studio apartment buildings in New York even before they built the Lyme Art Association and so there are people who sort of knew how to create physical places um, for art and art making and they got together in 1914 with the idea of building this building and you know it's really that kind of formal organization that I think laid the foundation for the Florence Griswold Museum today. So, and what I mean by that is by the end of Florence Griswold's life, she was always kind of struggling financially and health problems caught up with her. A conservator had to be appointed to help take care of her finances. And he uh, said that her house, the Griswold house, um, had to be sold to generate funds for her care. And so the artists um, who uh, had formed the Art Association mobilized again and formed the Florence Griswold Association to try to buy her house um, and take care of her financial troubles. And they were were outbid in their efforts to buy Florence's house, unfortunately, by a judge who wanted to build a country home on her property. But he let Florence stay in her house. Um, and just a few years later, he actually sold her house and a little bit of land around it to the artists of the Florence Griswold Association. So this idea that they could band together to found an art association, to found an association for, for Florence's care, and then out of that to found a museum that would honor her legacy. That's the string that sort of connects the two institutions. And, you know, we told the story of the art colony in Florence Griswold's house uh, for many years until the Changing Exhibition Gallery opened. But we really, um, I think we haven't perhaps um, celebrated as fully as we could the connections between the museum and the Art Association. The Art Association is still a group uh, of exhibiting, practicing painters. And so it's as much tied to the contemporary, the world of art today as it is to, um, to its history. And they've done a lot of work themselves as they have undergone um, renovations of their building and restoration, sort of thinking about their own legacy and about the past. And I think we're looking forward to this year um, as a time when we can sort of, you know, talk about the, the historical connections between our two institutions. Absolutely. I think it's so remarkable. There are so few buildings, really, or museums that are named after women. So I think it's just remarkable that Miss Florence was clearly well regarded and affectionately regarded really throughout her lifetime and after her after her lifetime the fact that they tried to save her house it's a pretty amazing to me that as a preservationist that the time that the i think he was a judge the judge owned the mm -hmm, property mm -hmm. a little bit. Uh, i'm surprised that his wife did not redecorate and paint over all the dining room panel paintings that were by the artists. It's just remarkable to me. Yeah, that or that they weren't dismantled or sold. You know, Florence was, you know, 
she often was in financial troubles and didn't, you know, there are stories about her refusing offers to sell individual panel paintings. I mean, it's, it's for people who haven't been to the museum, it is a truly special place that, you know, and especially when you consider this dining room that I'm talking about where these painted panels are and around the first floor of the house. Um, it's part of what makes it so special is the fact that it has survived intact as a kind of physical man manifestation of this group of people who gathered there. These artists had been at art colonies in Europe where people might hang up, do a painting, and hang it in the inn where they all stayed, but none of those have survived the way that this artist dining room does here. There are other examples in the world, a couple, but it's this is really unique in the United States. Absolutely, and I think we'll try to get a photo, a good photo from the museum that we'll put up uh, on our website to go along with the podcast, because you just walk in that dining room and it's just amazing that it's still there. Yes. So, the other big exhibition that we want to talk about is 20 years worth of the Hartford Steam Boiler Collection being at the museum. And why don't you tell us a little bit about each one of those two exhibitions and how they come together at the museum. Sure, so um, this is a year of anniversaries, um, and as we look toward, or, or we're entering the year of anniversaries, let's see, we started these shows in the fall, we're really looking at them as shows for 2021 as well. And in 2001, the museum learned that it would be receiving from the Hartford Steam Boiler um, Inspection Insurance Company, a collection of American art that had been formed since the 1980s with the advice of uh, some museum directors and art experts the company, which is located up in Hartford still, was going to be merging with AIG, and they had formed the collection uh, when they opened their new, then new, headquarters in Hartford in the 1980s, but the idea behind the collection, as the CEO described it, was to create an art collection that would be a kind of celebration of Connecticut heritage for its people, and he wanted that preserved even though the company was going to be sold. He didn't want the paintings just sold off as corporate assets. Um, and so they looked for a place where they could donate the collection. And this was at a time when the Florence Griswold Museum had gone through a, a years-long process to build a gallery for changing exhibitions. And that process was underway when the company was making its decision in, in secret about what to do with this art collection. And they invited the director of the museum at the time, our director emeritus, Jeffrey Anderson, to come discuss uh, a matter of interest to him and offered the art collection to the museum as a place where they knew it would have a major impact and be stewarded as a kind of uh, example of the artistic achievements and history and culture of Connecticut for the public. Um, they were really looking for a place where the collection would, you know, reach people in new ways and not just, you know, keep everything centralized in one of, you know, the sort of existing centers of Connecticut culture. So we decided now that this is the 20th anniversary of that major gift, which transformed the museum. Previously, we focused on the story of the Lime Art artists and the Lime Art colony. Getting the Hartford Steam Boiler Collection broadened out our institution's focus to the artists of Connecticut from the, you know, the 1700s until today. And so because it had such a transformative impact on us, we wanted to consider in the 20 years since it's been here, what new things have we learned about these works of art and how has the field of art history changed over that time? Uh, when the collection was debuted at the museum's new 
galleries. It was the opening show in our Creeble galleries. The emphasis was really on what story these paintings told about Connecticut. The emphasis of the catalog was a bit more biographical on the artists and the kinds of questions that art historians and museums and in American society that we're asking about our past are, are different now. And we want to inquire about how can we connect the past with the present um, through the medium of these paintings. So the curator of the exhibition, our associate curator, Jenny Parsons, brought together 20 scholars in honor of the 20 years to take on these works of art and really pose um, new questions about them and, and do new research about them in ways that would really help set set a path for us in the future. This is an anniversary show, but it's very forward-looking. She identified new themes for thinking of the works um, and connected the works with scholars who are working um, in these areas and have come up with some really great and exciting uh, new information about these works and new ways to look at them and to understand our history. What were some of the scholars, what were the sort of more out-of-the-box themes that they were looking at and did they make any new discoveries that surprised you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, as I mentioned before, you know, the field of art history has come a long way in the past 20 years. So a lot of the new discoveries are, you know, come out of the field of social history. So topics like gender, race, and identity, as well as environmental history, the sort of mobility of people in American culture, and the investigation of material culture. So um, the themes that um, Jenny chose to reflect the kind of those, the diversity of those topics are things like revealing hidden histories. There's a little sort of intersection of the show where she looks at some of these new discoveries. Um, there's one on eco-criticism, which considers the environment in art and how art is actually a kind of manifestation of people's relationship to the environment. There's a section on theories about things, which deals with materialism and material culture. New lenses on landscape and another section about identity. Um, and some of the really exciting discoveries are, are about the way that these pictures can kind of tell these new stories. So for example, Jenny took a portrait uh, in our collection of a member of the Gardner family. And it's something that we previously have sort of treated as an example of just early American portraiture. You know, this is how art gets started in Connecticut. And, you know, Jenny began to consider, you know, how is it possible that this person, that the person, that this member of the Gardner family in the portrait had this portrait painted? You know, what went into something like this? And so with the help of Carolyn Wakeman, who's the editor of our history blog from the archives, they did some research on the Gardner family and found, you know, how much of the family's fortunes come from Gardner's Island, from land that they had there that are tied to, you know, the colonial re relationship to Native Americans and to enslavement of African Americans. And so the hidden history that this portrait of a member of the White Gardner family can tell us is also about the work of these enslaved um, peoples, you know, that generated the wealth that paid for a portrait like this. So it kind of gives us a new way to, to look at this picture. Um, you know, we don't have portraits of the people, for example, who worked on the Gardner property on their on Gardner's Island. Um, that's an absence. But how can the material objects that we do have you know, be tapped to tell some of those same kinds of stories. So I think that's one of the kind of new narratives that's emerged through Jenny's research in the exhibition. What about, mm -hmm. uh, did you find anything new or interesting about the relationship between the Florence Griswold House Museum and the Lyme Art Association? We know yes. they're, they're connected, but was did anything new crop up? 
I think in looking at the relationship of the two, I think I what I gained is a really new understanding of, you know, I think I had previously sort of thought about them creating this art association in the gallery as a way of kind of enshrining the old fashioned in a certain sense. And yet, you know, they're building, a, it's a new building, but it looks very historical and traditionally New England um, with a shingle siding on the outside. And in a way, it sort of seemed like the project is one that had to do with with romanticizing the past. And yet what I realized is that these artists were really people of their forward-looking time in the early 1920s in opening this building, in that they recognized that creating a gallery like this was going to be essential to their sort of commercial survival, their economic survival. Um, and so they sort of created this, this brand through, through the gallery that had to do with history and the past. For example, they, um, in reading some of the documents about their deliberations and the long process that it took to build this building, they spent a lot of time talking about where the building should be. Should it just be at the library where they had their um, exhibitions, you know, from the start? Or should it be somewhere else they consider different sites and a key consideration for choosing Florence Griswold's property and get entering into a relationship with her to buy part of it was the fact that her property was located not near the library but on a route that cars took more often because it was a route connected to the new bridge over the Connecticut River they're very attuned to how this is a gallery that they're building because it's going to draw tourists and so that is going to and they're going to be selling paintings there and that's going to kind of it's going to sort of sustain sustain their efforts um, but also you know they, they did have ambitions toward kind of um, disseminating American art and you know this is an era in which European modernism is really ascendant in art and so they're really kind of doing doing what they can to kind of create a path forward for the type of work that they did and I gained a new respect for the way that they seem to very consciously make decisions about um, how to do that in building this building you know, there's also some really great discoveries just, you know, trying to figure out which works, you know, they, they opened the new building in 1921 with their 20th anniversary exhibition. And so we have photographs of that installation. And so there was some fun detective work and trying to track down what were some of these works of art. We have, you know, a list of titles and then we have photographs of the, you know, of the works displayed in the gallery. So really zooming in close to figure out, okay, what were all of these things and if, if they can be found again. And I would say one of the highlights was finding that the centerpiece of the show in 1921 was a painting uh, by the artist Lawton Parker called La Peresse, a really monumental nude figure. And we found that it was in a private collection and were able to borrow it again for this exhibition. So, and it's not only is it an is it an amazing painting, but it's a painting that really, by including it in their 1921 show, these artists were signifying their ambition. This is a picture that had won a medal uh, in France at their salons. It's a picture that had been exhibited in these really prominent venues in the United States. And it's also a picture because the subject is new that had been uh, a picture that had been censored at an exhibition. And I think by them including it in the show in Old Lyme, they were saying, this is a place where artists are going to call the shots and, you know, we'll put what we want into our new building. So by kind of unearthing some of those stories, I think I, you know, gained a, a different appreciation for what was motivating the artists, you know, in their plans for the LA building and in the show that they used to open it. It's nowadays, we don't even think twice about the fact that you have to be a self-promoter, you have to create a brand, you have to have a regular 
recognizable name. You have to have a celebrity presence, shall we say. So it's interesting that they were already thinking about they've got to, they're beginning to be a little old fashioned because like you said, modernism is moving on in Europe and they're doing impressionist type work but that they really felt that they needed to cement their place in American art as a progressive art colony with active painters. I think all that's- and they're, Yeah, and they're kind of answering, ba they're answering back toward European modernism. I mean, there is, in the 1920s, and this is, um, scholars like Wanda Korn have written about this, um, you know, in the 1920s, Americans aren't just looking at Europe anymore. Um, you know, the first painters of the, of the Limar colony are painting in a style that, you know, they pick up in France, you know, but by the 1920s, Americans are really thinking, what about our Americanness can we bring an, into our art? You know, if this, how can this be an expression of contemporary art, contemporary life, but also be an American expression, something to, that originates here? And the vernacular, the kind of regional identity, the New Englandness of Old Lyme is something that um, artists really hit upon as a way to, you know, kind of show that what they're doing is new. So New England itself is a very old-fashioned place. The imagery is old-fashioned, but the idea that you're creating this kind of American subject or art in this American vernacular is a new idea in the 1920s. And I think, you know, these artists were practicing that in a lot of ways. Um, and to your point about the self-promotion, you know, it is true that that is like second nature today, but these artists, again, were being very modern in that self-promotion. Um, you know, the 1920s is the decade of advertising, which um, we, I, I think we probably don't think a lot about that history, but they were really, these artists in Old Lyme were complimented in an article in the paper in the Waterbury newspaper just a couple of years after the building opened for having basically such a strong publicity operation. You know, they kind of realized that because they weren't, you know, in a major city that they needed to get the word out and, and really publicize things. And, you know, there's this analogy that's mentioned in some of the exhibition texts about um, these artists having a, basically a publicity machine sort of worthy of one of the best advertising firms. Oh, I love that. That's such a great point because you think of the Roaring Twenties as the big neon signs and bright color advertising and print everywhere and the development <laughs> of publicists. So you think of movies and publicists, for example. I, I think they, they were onto something, definitely. I understand even President Wilson and his wife came by. They did. So Ellen Axon Wilson, who was the first wife of Woodrow Wilson, um, she died in 1914, you know, when he was in the White House. But she was actually, she actually trained as an artist, um, as a young woman, um, as a painter. And then after her brother died, she returned to painting as a kind of solace. And to pursue it, the family came to Old Lyme for the first time in 1905. And then they came back between 1908 and 1911. And then and Woodrow's political career took off. So they had spent a number of years in Old Lyme and living in the Florence Griswold House. Um, Woodrow had some great observations about what it was like to be part of this community, you know, where they're sort of bohemians and he talks about listening to them, you know, plan the exhibitions as this kind of interested, detached outsider. And when Woodrow Wilson, after his wife dies, 
he remarries, and in 1917, he comes back to Old Lyme on a visit, and they, the presidential yacht is parked in the Sound, and he <laughs> motors up the Lieutenant River with his new wife to Florence Griswold's house um, to visit again. So they did visit again, and she said, oh, she thought the, she, she, she thought the food was horrible. She didn't know how he stood it. So times changed, but, but he, st he remained, I think, very much interested in and supportive, you know, of the friends he'd made in Old Lyme. Thanks to my guest, Amy Lansing, and thanks for listening. For more holiday episodes, go to Grading the Nutmeg wherever you get your podcasts. This is Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. If you'd like to learn more about the Florence Griswold and the Old Lime Art Colony, visit the museum's website at florencegriswoldmuseum.org. Want a daily dose of Connecticut history? Subscribe to Today and CTHistory.com and follow Connecticut Explored on Facebook and Instagram. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.